0: When I grow up, I want to be an engineer. When I grow up, I want to be an author. When I grow up, I want to be a fine art thief. When I grow when I up, up, I want when to be a I grow up. When, when I, up. Up. When I when grow up, up. When when I, I, know up. How I want to be a professional. When I grow up, I want to be a professional. I want to do recordings and help.
1: Welcome to My Dilettante Life, a podcast where I talk to experts about what it really means to be a professional fill-in-the-blank, hosted by me, lifelong dabbler, Hannah Binder. Listeners, this is your host Hanna Binder. Today on My Dilettante Life, I'll be interviewing Dan Niebel, a professional musician who plays French horn and organ.
0: I can say at least, at least while I was doing my undergrad and like really focusing on music as a career, uh, my dream job would have been playing in an orchestra, like a really major orchestra. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yet yeah, um, being the
1: keyword, yeah.
0: We'll, we'll see if that ever does. I'm at the point in my career now where if it doesn't, that's like not the end of the world for me, and probably there are aspects of that that would be not as enjoyable as I would have expected them to be. But yeah, the the goal was really being a full time player on on my horn, which I found other things that I enjoy.
1: Okay, well, I'm excited to to hear a little bit about more um more about what those are. Can you give me sort of a a brief um biography of yourself. So just to, you know, from my perspective, you and I went to high school together where we played French horn in the band together. Um, But we have not seen each other in person for coming up on 20 years because my my 20th high school (laughs) reunion is coming up. (laughs) Um, So yeah, can you just give kind of a brief um, statement about who you are and, and what you do?
0: Uh, Well, so I guess I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, which is a wonderfully strange little town. I I started playing piano when I was in third grade and then started playing French horn in fifth grade and then also started taking uh, pipe organ lessons when I was in eighth grade. And by the time I was in high school, I was doing all three of those and eventually joined choir and I was just doing like way too much music and that was about all I did. And it kind of defined my life In both good and bad ways. I had wonderful, wonderful times in marching band with Hannah as my uh, section leader.
1: (laughs) Glad you think they were wonderful.
0: When I initially was thinking about college, I actually didn't intend on only majoring in French horn. I wanted to do music as, you know, a a big part of it, but I was also planning on doing some sort of a science degree. But uh, I took... Auditions at five different schools, all of them were pretty major music schools, and only one of them accepted me. And that was the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York. Where that campus was located compared to the University of Rochester, doing it two degrees in like vastly different fields was, it was doable, but it was not like easy to make happen. There was a half an hour bus ride and schedules didn't match up. And so I, I just eventually decided to do only music there on only music performance after that i got a well it was kind of a job and and a teaching assistantship at wichita state university in wichita kansas so i did my master's degree there and while i was there i was also playing professionally in um, wichita symphony and any basically anything else that was happening and that's also where i got my first organ job so i've i've also been playing in churches for well over a decade now um, in various roles, playing organ, piano, and directing choirs. And so after a year there, uh, sorry, three years there, and meeting my future wife, uh, we ended up going to Chicago for a year because she had a job as a, as a manager at Qdoba she could go back to. So we had something stable. Um, I had one gig in one year because I didn't know anyone, and that was really awful. But I did get a church job out out in uh, the suburbs of Western Ch- Chicago. And I continued taking auditions, um, some of them more successful than others, and then ended up starting a doctorate at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. So we moved out there for a year. And after a year there, I won a job um, playing full time in a Air Force band, so the United States Air Force and got to go to basic training for two months which was interesting at age 27 and then uh spent five years out in the bay area in california playing professionally in a military band and then also i was gigging around with some of the local orchestras there and uh enjoyed the orchestra playing more than the band playing um, but I did get to do a lot of other interesting things in the band. Uh, our, we we ran our own unit, so I got to learn things like tour managing and graphic design and all of the stuff that kind of goes on behind the scenes to make gigs happen. And then, so after after five years in the Air Force, I decided to move on. My wife was finishing a degree. Um, she's a trumpet player who has gone back and gotten a bachelor's and master's degree in geotechnical engineering.
1: Okay. I was going to ask if she was a fellow musician. So
0: Yeah. So she's done like the college thing twice and uh, she was finishing a degree out in Colorado when I was in California. So I moved back to Colorado after getting out of the air force and have been freelancing and finishing up my doctorate at university of Northern Colorado since then. Uh, currently with the pandemic, Almost of my performing jobs have gone away very quickly, so I've sort of pivoted into teaching. So I'm doing a lot of private teaching of piano and organ and horn. Um, I still play in an orchestra out in California about six times a year. I have a church job that pays nice, nice and uh, steady, and then I also just started teaching at Colorado State University Pueblo one day a week. So. I have lots of sources of income from lots of different places. And in some ways that's really fun because it's, you know, a lot of variety. But in other ways, it's also like taxes are just a nightmare. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm sure you can't do the like easy file uh come April 15th.
0: No, I know lots of lots and lots about uh deductions and things that I never thought I would be thinking about. <laughs>
1: Well, and it's interesting, you know, um, hearing you talk about that and then thinking back to like what I've read about people who have spots with like the, I don't know, Boston Pops or, you know, some Philharmonic in a major city, I kind of feel like they seem like professors with tenure and then everyone else in the world is a little bit more maybe like adjunct professors.
0: Would Let's, you say that's, that's accurate? Fairly, fairly accurate. Um, there is definitely a tenure system in most major orchestras, and once someone has has tenure, it's very difficult to get rid of them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Move on, I should say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah. Wording.
0: <laughs> the one thing that I would say would be a drawback, and I haven't necessarily lived this, but I do know people who have, is that a major orchestra like that. I mean, it's week in, week out. Like you got to be really quite good and on your on your playing so if something goes wrong like that's really really stressful but it's also a little bit like the same thing over and over and over again Mm -hmm. you know they play the music that people want to hear and by the fifth time of playing you know beethoven's whatever symphony well maybe not beethoven because beethoven's awesome but like
1: for horns at least
0: (laughs) a piece that you're like oh god i have to play this again and it was like playing Sousa in, in, in the band.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Everyone wants to hear this, but I don't want to play it again.
1: <laughs> I, I, like, I wonder if, if um, yeah, so like professional musicians in an orchestra feel the same way about, say, like Ravel's Bolero, the way that maybe the members of U2 feel about, like, what is it, Sunday, Bloody Sunday? They're like, oh, I just can we just play a concert where we don't play that piece?
0: <laughs> yes, yes. I'm, sh- I'm sure that, that there there is that feeling. Yeah. Or at least maybe a season where we don't play that piece. Yeah.
1: <laughs> fair. Fair enough. Yeah. So, okay. You're listening to My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder, and today's interview is with Dan Niebel, a professional French horn player and organist. Um. So can you tell me then um, – right now, would you say that you concentrate more or do you feel like more that French horn is your sort of primary focus and organ is sort of a secondary or are they kind of, or is it the opposite or are they kind of like both equally the focus of your professional career right now?
0: So French horn has always been my primary thing that I've focused on in school. That's the degree I'm getting Mm that ultimately be what I would like to do and probably am best at in practicality organ has probably earned me more than horn.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> um, it's certainly my really steady income right now. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I'm investing more time and more um, like certification type things into right now. And if that became like my main source of income, I wouldn't be super sad about it.
1: Well, and I would think there's probably just maybe more opportunities for organ than P or then so Horn.
0: Yes and no. Um, there is definitely a lack of organists, especially in Colorado right now. Um there's only one program that actually teaches organ in Colorado. And as you know, people age and retire, they're not necessarily finding people to replace them in all of the, the churches that would want that. But on the flip side, churches are also changing a lot. Um, the music is getting a little less traditional and at least in the churches that are thriving
1: mm-hmm.
0: or towards rock band type church, praise band church. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know how long that's actually going to last as a thing mm-hmm. being a Unfortunately, at a really high level, it'll still be around for a long time. But are we going to have organists in every church? Probably not. And a lot of churches are clothing. So that's just a big change, you know, and it's something that people are figuring out as it goes along. Mm -hmm. Industry is kind of like that. It has been for a long time.
1: Yeah, well, and you're talking about the intersection of of really two industries, right? Because it's yeah. music and then religion, if you want to think of religion as like an industry, both of which I would imagine are undergoing their own separate changes. And so when you get to the intersection of them, it's, yeah, got to be just like a culmination of many different trends that are shaping things in a new direction. Yes,
0: yeah, so especially, especially classical music, it's it has taken classical musicians longer to get into the digital digital side of things and be comfortable with that mhm
1: well and maybe even to think about like who their target audience is and therefore like how they want to market themselves right yeah
0: well and also since a lot of a lot of the organizations i work with are nonprofit they there's always a little bit of a disconnect between the people who donate and developing a new audience, because you have to pe- keep the people who donate, who are usually, you know, older and more conservative about their tastes in music. You have to keep them happy.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, you want those donations to keep coming in,
0: right? Or your organization doesn't exist, right? But also have to find ways to engage new audiences and and try to develop those audiences, but that's not always the easiest thing to make happen.
1: Yeah, like how do you maintain relevancy in a modern world and also please people who want things to stay the same way that they've always been? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds super easy.
0: (laughs) They they won't be here in 30 years.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, no, it's um, definitely something I remember, gosh, Many years ago, so after um, college, but a while ago now, I um, was in Usher for the Performing Arts Center in Miami. And uh, it was interesting to hear because they were having some of the same conversations where they would have sort of their traditional events, um, ballets, operas, you know, visiting artists um, who were like soloing with the symphony. And then they would also have their more, I would guess I would say like community focused events, which were really about bringing in new, like new audience members and sort of figuring out how to best present it so that they would want to come in. They would feel comfortable there and Mm -hmm. could kind of gradually learn more about why this might be something they would appreciate or enjoy. Um, And it was definitely like two different kind of flavors of events. Like you could they were definitely geared toward different audiences. Um, and so I don't know how they eventually brought those together or if they have yet, or if they're still kind of working on it, but I would assume that's something that most major, um, like classical music focused organizations are are facing right now, so.
0: Absolutely. Like one of my pet peeves as a musician is, so you're you're technically not supposed to clap between movements of a major piece, right? but a lot of people do. And I hate it when when musicians are all snobby and annoying about that and they're like won't acknowledge that people are appreciating them between movements. It's like
1: because of tradition.
0: <laughs> yeah, because they're stuffy, I don't know.
1: <laughs> um actually, okay, so when I was an usher in Miami, um so one of the performances that I ushered for was Yitzhak Perlman conducting the New World Symphony, which are you familiar with the New World Symphony? Yeah. The, uh, both the piece, but then also the ensemble?
0: Yes.
1: For anyone who doesn't know, it's kind of like an apprenticeship symphony, I guess I would call it, in that it is a full symphony, but it tends to be made up of younger musicians um, who may not be as like established as people in like a traditional philharmonic or symphony orchestra.
0: Yeah, it's, it's usually people right out of college, and I think they, they're limited to maybe two to three seasons with the orchestra.
1: Yeah, but I mean, yeah, like definitely professional musicians, high caliber of music. Um, And so for this particular performance, um, so after the intermission, they were going to play Dvorak's New World Symphony. Prior to intermission, they played something else. I can't remember what the piece was, but it was something that had multiple movements. And people in the audience kept clapping in between the movements. Um, So after intermission, Yitzhak Perlman comes out and... Like, he's just such a friendly, like, jocular person. So he, like, has been bantering back and forth with the audience the whole time. So when he comes out after intermission, he said, um, you know, while he was in his dressing room, he was approached by the ghost of Antonin Dvorak. And they had a nice conversation, and they were chatting. Um, And he just wanted to pass along that Mr. Dvorak just had one request for the audience, um that was about to listen to his unfinished symphony or new world symphony rather um, he requested that they not clap between movements. And if it had been said in a different way, I think it would have been really annoying, but because Yitzhak Perlman is just this, like, just such a, like a figure, like he's just, you know, he's not, I never get the impression that he's snobby or anything. He just like said it in such an unassuming way. And so everyone kind of like laughed and then no one clapped between movements. And I was like, okay, that's like one way to say it in which you're not um, offending your audience. You're not making people feel hopefully um, like they're out of place or ashamed or whatever. Um, But like, was kind of a teachable moment. Um, But I'm glad to hear from you as a musician that you don't support people being really like, snobby or um, I don't know, easily offended when, when not everyone knows like perfect concert etiquette.
0: Well, ironically, a lot of the music when it was actually written, they would clap between movements and sometimes they'd repeat them if people really liked them. And, And so, I don't know, there's just been this like really weird culture that has developed over the years that you know, it's high art and we all have to be very well behaved and dressed <laughs> up. And I get I get that some people really appreciate that. But I, I think it's a big turnoff to a lot of audiences and it's not. It's not worth it, in my opinion.
1: <laughs> well, and, um, you know, did you've, I'm sure you've seen the, the movie Amadeus. Yes, So like there they have, you know, the performances that are given in the palace where everyone is dressed up and really quiet and appreciative. And then there's like the scene, was it the magic flute? There was like some um, opera that they were doing for the people, like for the masses, if you will. And everyone was like nuts. The the audience was like yelling things out and heckling the people on stage. Like everyone was talking and moving around. And it was great because it was like, people were kind of paying attention to what was going on on stage, but they were also like having a conversation with their neighbor or whatever. And it was just very lively. Um, and I kind of like that, like the origins of some of what we exalt as like this amazing classical music. Kind Some of its roots are like pretty, um, like pretty street. <laughs> I don't <Yeah>. know. <laughs>
0: well, it's, it's interesting when you think about the music that I, I, you know, I play for the most part, it was the popular music 300 years ago. Yeah. You know, it's, it was their Taylor Swift.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although I don't know, maybe Swifties would be really upset if you were to go to one of her concerts and talk through her songs. So that might not be the most appropriate
0: I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> parallel to me. Um, okay. But I have this list of questions that I need to get through with you. So I'm going to ask you, um, no, this is great. I love it. So do you remember the first time or like, how old were you when you first learned about, or first thought about like playing music professionally?
0: You know, I didn't really think about it until like I was a junior in high school. Okay. And I didn't really make the decision, yes, this is what I'm going to, I'm going to go take all these auditions and everything until um, actually the summer before my senior year. I met um, the second horn player of the New Mexico Symphony Orchestra, Chris Dwyer. I met him at a at a like Brun Quintet thing and started taking lessons with him. And he basically said, if you wanted to be a professional, you're good enough. And that's like the thing that, that I was like, oh, okay, well, let's go for it. Because I didn't really know what else I really wanted to do because I'd just been doing so much music growing up and, you know, maybe I needed some other hobbies. I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, as long as they were like, you know, making you happy or bringing you satisfaction in some way, I feel like. <laughs> yes. Um, you had a lot of different hobbies they all just happened to lie in a musical or most of them happened to be in a musical you know field Um, yeah I think
0: I was involved in like every single ensemble that Los Alamos and Santa Fe probably offered
1: (laughs) uh even the jazz ensembles I don't want to be playing a jazz band (laughs) that's okay I guess um
0: I still don't do jazz
1: (laughs) Good, good to know. Has anything surprised you about the job? And if so, like, what have you found to be kind of the most surprising thing?
0: I guess like starting out, I didn't realize just how competitive and how difficult it would be. Mm -hmm. If I knew what I knew now, I probably wouldn't have majored in music. Okay. Or if I had, I certainly would have at least gotten uh, a music education degree. Um, Cause the degrees I have now, if I'm not performing music, they're fairly useless. And, uh, to win a job, like they don't really care if you have a degree, they mm-hmm. want to know to play, but there's also like probably 15, 20 other people that could play that job just as well as you. And so it's who has the best day. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's very competitive and for not a lot of job security and not a lot of pay, to be blunt.
1: <laughs> when you, so when you were pursuing your degree, given that you were doing music performance instead of like music education or, or a, a completely unrelated degree, did that give you more like more structured time to practice and work on technique than you would have had otherwise?
0: To some extent. Yeah. Um, I didn't have to take any of the education classes and I didn't have to learn how to play all the different instruments which can sometimes kind of mess up your face or you know whatever when you're trying to not not only does it feel weird but you also just don't have as much time to commit to to your main instrument. It's not to say that it's not possible to do a music education degree and then you know really excel at performance. I think that's very very doable and I if I if I went back and redid it, that's what I would do. Because then at least as soon as I graduated, I'd have a a decent career as a you know, teaching in a public school if I wanted it. And Um, so
1: it sounds like maybe transitioning from sort of a music music education background to performing. Might be easier depending on how much just like raw talent and ability you have versus transitioning from a music performance education to being a music educator.
0: If I wanted to be a music educator, I would need to go and do the coursework and the uh, the teacher credentialing. And right now it's just not something I want to do. Yeah. could probably teach like at a private you know, like a private high school or something like that and and be fine. Mm -hmm. But uh, it did limit what I could do career-wise quite a bit. And there's nothing preventing you from practicing and focusing and getting a lot better as a performer if you're spending a lot of time teaching other than time.
1: But do you think like... If you had gotten mm-hmm. if you'd gone into music education instead of music performance, um, and this is based on just like what I saw when I was playing in band in university, um, like most of the people I knew were music education majors there, but I did know a few music performance folks as well. Do you feel like if you went into music education instead, it would act as kind of like a safety net that would then... Like do you feel like maybe music performance has forced you to kind of be more in the performance realm because you don't have that to fall back on, oh I can I can go into teaching if I don't find enough gigs?
0: To some extent, yes. Okay. If I had if I had the if I had the music ed background, I probably wouldn't really be doing as much performing as I am.
1: So it kind of it, yeah, it pushes you to maybe um take risks or, um, yeah. Or just like be more out there in the performing world than you might have otherwise been. Yeah. Okay.
0: Which but I, I think I also really enjoy the performing enough that I, I would have still pursued that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It just might've taken longer. Okay. To get there. Yeah. I'm definitely a big believer in as you know, you'll get what, you'll get out of it what you put into it Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and that everyone is capable of getting there. Just, it's a matter of time and smart, hard work.
1: Do you have a burning question for a previously interviewed guest? Do you want an update from a particular interview? Submit your question on the podcast website and it may be featured on an upcoming audience asks segment where we have a quick check-in or follow-up with someone who appeared earlier on the show. So what misconceptions do you tend to find people have about what it means to be a professional musician?
0: Well, a lot of people pursue music as a hobby. And um, like they don't necessarily take you seriously that that is your career. And they don't recognize all of the hard work and just like kind of blood, sweat, and tears you got to put into it to actually make it happen. They don't necessarily realize how competitive it is to actually be paid for it. You know, I've, I've definitely been like that, you know, someone meets me and they say, what do you do? And it's like, oh, I'm a professional musician. And they're like, well, wh- what do you actually do?
1: Well, or like if I were to say, Oh, I just um started playing horn again in our local band. So I know I know what your life is like. You just do a little bit more than what I do.
0: Yeah. It's it's there's a big difference when it's like, well, if I'm not really playing my horn well, I probably can't pay my rent. From, well, if I'm not playing my horn well, I just kind of embarrassed myself in front of some people. <laughs>
1: Well, and then you're talking about kind of the blood, sweat and tears, time and effort that you put into it and how there's kind of a misconception, I think, for a lot of folks. So can you tell me, like, on average, how much time do you spend playing your horn, whether it's practicing pieces, whether it's working on technique? So how you've been playing now for how many years?
0: Um, So I've been playing around 25 years.
1: OK. And so. Given that you have now 25 years of experience, 25 years of building up the muscles in your lips and cheeks and maintaining all of that, um, how much time nowadays do you spend on a daily basis?
0: So nowadays, I actually get away with doing a whole lot less.
1: Because of corona?
0: Well, somewhat because of corona and also because I, I have gotten my expertise to the level that it's at that I can get away with not practicing as much.
1: But what does not practicing as much mean?
0: Like on a good day, I'm probably playing an hour a day on my own. Okay. As I'll take off completely.
1: And then when you were sort of at your height of needing to work on, yeah, developing all those things that you can now do much more expertly, how much would you say you were playing a day?
0: I was probably doing personal practice of about three hours a day. And then had rehearsals on top of that. So, you know, horn on the face or at least in the hands was maybe up to six to seven hours a day. Okay. Which is kind of a lot.
1: Yeah. Well, and when people think, Oh, like I do that as a hobby, you just do it a little bit more. I don't think people are thinking you play as many hours a day as I, or more um, as I like actually spend doing hard, solid work at whatever it is that I do for a job. Like,
0: yeah. Like it wouldn't be un, un, unreasonable to have two rehearsals in a day and also play an hour a day, mm-hmm. five, six hours of, I'm not, not necessarily playing the whole time in a rehearsal, but I'm still like really focused on the music.
1: Sure. Cause it's not entirely, it's not just um, like the physical act of playing. You also have to be like aware of the orchestra and thinking about like the balance of sound and yeah, I'm not getting some...
0: lost. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. When you have like 28 measures of rest and you're like, wait, am I at 25 or 26?
0: And and, and you know, the conductor is no help and not actually giving you beats.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't. So the band that I'm in right now, the community band to be clear. So definitely not on a professional level. Um, I don't know that the, that our conductor will listen to an English language podcast. So I think I can get away with saying that sometimes I also have trouble following his beats and yes, it's, I'm always <laughs> like, ah, I hope he cues me this time. <laughs> and since we Worst are a community band, they, he does.
0: But <laughs> when they consistently cue you and then they forget to in the concert.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. That would <laughs> not be uh, something I would enjoy having happen. Definitely. <laughs> um, did you have any misconceptions other than sort of so you've talked about um, not realizing how competitive it would be? But before you went into this as, as a profession,, um, did your idea of what your like day-to-day life as a musician look different than what it ended up being?
0: Um, Not particularly. Like it was, you know, I knew it would be kind of a variety of things, which is really nice. The biggest thing was like, It was pretty easy for me to be, you know, one of the best players in New Mexico as a high schooler. And then I left New Mexico and I was like, oh, there's like Texas and New York and California and all these other places. (laughs) And it was, you know, it went from being a big fish in a small pond to being an average fish in a large pond. (laughs) That was, you know, a little bit of a blow to the ego. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: There is some, some level of you just have to like think you're amazing be successful, but you have to do it in a way where you don't come across as like a jerk.
1: Not until you get to a certain level, and then you can be as arrogant as you want, I would assume.
0: Yeah, I still don't like working with those people.
1: <laughs> Fair. Um, but what about, you know, so you were talking about you become kind of like an expert in really complicated tax returns. Like, did you even think about sort of those aspects of the life of a musician?
0: I definitely didn't think about the fact that I would be basically taking care of everything because I couldn't afford not to, um, you know, how many people think about setting up their own gigs, how many people think about ways to reach audiences. And a lot of that actually came when I was in the air force, which was nice. Uh, you know, how many people think about good public speaking as a musician, you know, people really like to engage, have that engagement beyond just listening to music. And so the whole aspects of putting on a good show compared to just executing music well is a, oh, there are things I never really thought I would be doing for sure. It's not things I don't, I don't mind doing, you know, it's, it's fun <laughs> to have variety.
1: And when you were doing your degree, is that something that was incorporated into the curriculum? Did they talk about kind of those ancillary or peripheral, but I don't want to say peripheral because they're still really important, but those, those things that are. Things
0: beyond music. Yeah. Yeah. So to some extent, yes, I think it could have been even more than it was. And I think music curriculum are changing to be that way more especially with, you know, everything is going digital. And like, if you don't know how to live stream well, you probably won't be successful now.
1: Yeah. And I would assume um, just like the advent of so much social media has probably given smaller or individual musicians, a lot more avenues to reach either audiences or um, like potential employers and potential gigs in like yeah. from a lot more streams, I guess.
0: Right. If you have some sort of a reputation on YouTube or whatever, you might actually get some revenue out of that. Or you get a lot of like some interesting, more like classical to popular crossover type stuff going on.
1: I did see a lot of that with, uh, with the pandemic lockdowns. I felt like there were yes. a lot more kind of like home projects of some cellist like uh, orchestrating the Tetris theme and then playing that. And it was cool to see the, yeah. the mixture of like instrumentation and, and music people came up with.
0: Yeah, like during the pandemic, I actually recorded an album and uh, was able to do it pretty, pretty inexpensively, but figuring out, you know, how do I license all these things? <laughs> how do I make sure I'm being legal a bit more than I was expecting?
1: And did you do all the like sound mixing and editing yourself?
0: So the the piano player I was working with, her her boyfriend is a Broadway sound engineer. So he 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 did all that and I paid him for all of that. But he also didn't charge me more than, you know, he probably should have charged me more than he did.
1: You got the friends and family discount, in other words. Yes.
0: <laughs> Great well, both of us needed to do something because we were bored about performing like we used to.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and would you say that? Um, sorry, this is kind of going off topic a little bit, but um, would you say that, like, have things started to rebound somewhat in terms of live gigs outside of sort of the church kind of ongoing consistent stuff?
0: Yeah, yeah. I've I've finally started getting back into a couple performances. Um, I think this spring will bring a lot more of that, but now I have to reconnect with all of the people who were just, you know, one-off gigs and remind them that I'm still here and I exist. And you know, that's work. <laughs>
1: um, so I want to ask you if you see yourself as an expert, um, at, you know, an expert in what it means to be a professional French horn player and what it means to be a professional musician. I also want to ask, since you are um pursuing your doctorate right now though, like how That affects how you perceive yourself versus prior to that? Or, like, once you're, you know, Dr. Nebel, will you perceive yourself differently, like maybe more as an expert? And I guess, Um, yeah, sorry, I'm kind of rambling, but like, what does, how do you see yourself in relation to the word expert?
0: Expert. Well, as a performer, I definitely feel like I'm an expert. You know, I go in there and I'm able to play really well with other people. Um I guess the biggest thing doing the doctorate and pursuing the doctorate has kind of given me was uh I'm certainly working on becoming an expert teacher. I think performing and teaching are uh, you know, like are fairly different things. Because it's like, well, I figured out how to do it for myself very well, but now I need to figure out how someone else figures it out.
1: Well, and um getting your doctorate with a focus on French horn, I would assume would be really different than being sort of a generalist music educator, right?
0: Yeah. uh, So the degree program I'm doing is actually a really interesting one. Um, Most people do a DMA, a doctorate of musical arts, and it's very performance-based. And so they, uh, you know, they do some recitals, they do, some lecture type things, they might write a very small dissertation. And it usually takes like two to three years and, um, it's not quite as involved. It's not as involved as like a PhD would be, but I'm doing a a doctorate of music, which is kind of between a PhD and a DMA. So I have to have a secondary emphasis. So I have to write a, a long dissertation and on top of doing some performing things. And so my my dissertation is actually about musician health, specifically in horn players. And so I'm kind of finding some things that I can really focus on and and like become, you know, the the person to go to about. Uh, partially it's because I've I've had back problems for about 10 years. And I think it's largely related to my horn playing. And so I'm doing some work in that realm that hasn't been done before. So it's kind of exciting to do like real research <laughs> in a music level. Um, so my my secondary emphasis is a uh, sports and exercise science. And actually the the lady I'm working with in that part of the school is, um, is going to be the primary person on my dissertation. And so UNC has actually been really nice and they're letting me kind of make my own career with my, my education that way, focus on what actually I find meaningful. And uh, so it's, it's been really good. And I think it's allowed me to feel more like a legitimate expert at things.
1: Well, and it's really important. I mean, you know, the more I think we look at um, how humans interact with our environments, the more we're finding that there are many things that we've just assumed are kind of par for the course, but they don't have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the same way that any professional athlete is reliant on their body's continued good functioning um, to continue doing what they do as a career, you know, musicians are also, and, and dancers are also very like physically dependent on their bodies, continued, you um, and it's resilience. something a lot of people
0: don't want to talk about as musicians, like sadly.
1: Do you think it's, is there like superstition where they worry that if they talk about it, something will happen to them? Or where do you think that comes from?
0: I think it's more embarrassment. It's like, you feel like you're a bit of a failure if you hurt yourself.
1: Because we shouldn't, because it's just playing an instrument. It's not something that, that takes and a And just like,
0: you know, I think one of the biggest dangers with doing music as a career is really equating your ability to play music with like your own self-esteem and ego and like, like you have to have music and then you and they have to be separate and if you are struggling with music that doesn't mean that you're a terrible person or that you're a failure or anything like that and And because you will fail, like you're guaranteed to fail multiple times. And if you don't, then, well, I envy you.
1: (laughs) Or maybe you're not pushing yourself enough. If you are never experiencing failure, maybe you're only staying within what's safe and not reaching your full potential.
0: Yeah. I think, I think you learn from failure, but also like you can't let that, Destroy, you know, what you're trying to do. It's 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 really a, a tricky balance, I think. And and getting back to like hurting yourself, if you're if you're hurting yourself and then not able to play at the level you wanted to or used to, it's like, well, you probably did it to yourself at some level, maybe through ignorance, possibly through not having the best technique or or whatever, or not taking care of yourself the way you could, but um, It's just like not something that gets talked about very well.
1: Well, and then I would imagine there's like a mental health component of that as well. Like if people are reluctant to talk about how their physical health um, affects their playing and their playing is bound up in their sense of self-worth, then I could see that being like a perfect storm to you know, have a community of people who might not be in the healthiest place mentally or emotionally, but also not in a community that encourages people to be open about that.
0: Right. And then just like the, you know, the freelance aspect, at least that I'm experiencing right now of playing, there's no job security. So if I, if I did injure myself to, so that I was not able to play at the level, you know, that was expected, you know, (laughs) I have to do something else. And then there's the whole frustration of figuring out how to come back from that. And it's possible, but it's, it's, I mean, that's one of the reasons my wife is not a professional trumpet player. She had an injury and um, music was possible, but it was not as much fun as it used to be. It was a kind of a balancing game of, well, am I going to be able to get through this concert without embarrassing myself. And and the pay just isn't worth it if that's how you're feeling when you're playing.
1: Well, and so can can I ask you, I think one thing that I've heard often from people who, and sorry to use this like jargon, but people who monetize a hobby as it were. So like do the thing professionally that so many people enjoy doing, not professionally, but solely as a personal pursuit that often it, it changes your relationship to that thing. So something that you once loved because it's now your job, you don't love it in the same way, whether that means it becomes like, you know, um, something you don't love anymore, like it becomes just a job, or it just means that you can't you can't have the same relationship with it once money comes into things. Like how has your relation, how did your relationship to playing music change once you went into it professionally?
0: Um, I I think you actually kind of hit the nail on the head there. Um, I think if I'd only done music as a, just something I enjoyed doing regularly, you know, just played in ensembles and kept doing community things, I think I would probably genuinely enjoy it a little bit more than I do now.
1: Do you think that if you were, like, do you find that if you are doing more, let's say on the organ end, um, so for example, during the pandemic, when you weren't really, when live gigs were not really a thing um, for most people, when you were playing horn, so were you playing it more just for yourself? Obviously somewhat to keep your lips in shape. Um, and if you were sort of playing it more for your own like pleasure or enjoyment, did you find that you enjoyed it more than you had when you were playing more with like a gig as a goal?
0: Um, ooh, That's a hard one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Take your time. Well, I, <laughs> you I, think about it.
0: I have to say like, I'm not a great practicer if i don't have a goal in mind whether it's a goal that i set for myself you know i I ended up setting up a fair amount of uh things for me to do i had some live streams coming up i played both of my doctoral recitals during the pandemic i recorded a an album i started a woodwind quintet like i needed Outlets for my horn, otherwise I knew I wouldn't play it. And ultimately I'm I'm happier playing my instrument regularly, that's for sure. But I think in the long run, if I had maybe done it as more of a hobby, I wouldn't have. So one of the things with music is like you have to develop your ear. And at the point, the point I'm at now, playing with amateurs is like kind of painful.
1: You can hear when we're off by like, well, tiny yeah, like bit. I
0: hear everything and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Sounding. <laughs> like, it sounds really arrogant of me, but like, I've gotten to the point where, where it's like, if I'm not playing with professionals, I'm really not having fun.
1: I mean, it'd be the same as if you were an incredible soccer player and then you went and joined like a pickup rec game. Right. I'm sure it would be super frustrating for both you and everyone on your team. So it, yeah, would I would assume be very similar.
0: And and on the flip side, I'm not nearly as skilled as a pianist and organist. And so I'm, I am working with a lot of more amateur musicians in that setting. And I, I feel like, you know, I can still be contributing and and enjoy it a little bit more without being so, uh, I guess, hard on myself when I mess up or anything I'm gonna make mistakes on piano and organ like it's inevitable
1: there's a lot more keys and a lot larger range and you've got more uh, notes go- going on at the same time with the horn it's just one note at a time right and
0: then when you mess it up everyone knows
1: there is that yes
0: <laughs> um
1: but it's also so, somewhat expected with the horn right aren't we notorious true. for that
0: well there's inevitable mistakes when I when I perform on horns well but there's a whole lot more of them on piano when I'm playing but I get away with it a lot more (laughs) that that being said I also would not probably take a gig on piano where like they wanted to you know record it and want it sound perfect because it's not going to get there
1: gotcha okay
0: I kind of have different levels of comfort on different instruments
1: and determine-
0: And when you <laughs> you're playing that.
1: with like um with amateur musicians do you find that like are you able to kind of I don't know does their approach to music affect your approach to music like do you feel maybe a little bit less pressure um maybe a little bit more I don't want to say like a childlike sense of wonder but you know what I'm saying like it's not so um Mm.
0: It depends. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of a lot of amateur musicians will also sort of put the pressure on those themselves that a professional would. That doesn't really change that much. Okay. Um, for me, it' like at least in like a like a wind ensemble or something. The biggest thing is with amateurs. There's like seven different levels of pitch, and so the intonation is all over the place and. Um, my instinct is just to match whatever I hear. I don't necessarily even know I'm doing it. But when I have like all of these different people playing at different pitch levels, it really messes with my head.
1: Which one do you match to?
0: Well, you, I try to match to all of them and I can't. <laughs>
1: right. So then it actually, it's
0: actually way more tiring to play in that sort of a setting. Which... <laughs> I mean, it sounds like arrogant to be like, oh, I hate playing with amateurs. <laughs> but there are reasons that it, it it's more difficult. Sure. Actually.
1: Sure. So um I know we've we've talked about some of the kind of like difficulties, some of the challenges, some of the unexpected aspects of being a professional musician. What's kind of the coolest part that you The Coolest part. Yeah. Or what are the, I mean, it's, parts it's,
0: it's still just really, really amazing. You know, you'll have those performances where like everything just was working and the whole group sounds really good. You know, it's, it's like the epitome of teamwork.
1: Are you familiar with the concept of flow?
0: Yeah. Yes. So Do you
1: feel like, like you, when you're in an ensemble, is the ensemble in flow together when they experience those moments?
0: Oh, absolutely. Like it, it can be really thrilling and really amazing. You know, there's, there's aspects of it that like, I wouldn't trade for the world. I also really like the variety of things. You know, I think if I was going into an office for eight hours a day doing basically the same thing over and over again, I might, you know, go insane. There is that (laughs) there's also the aspect of where I am right now, I can have a lot of ownership in what I do and have a lot of, you know, impact and leadership in what I'm, I'm doing and, and like a creative vision, which I don't think you always get in other careers. And that's really gratifying to be like, hey, I, you know, I made this album. I did everything for it. and I'm really proud of it. And I actually enjoy listening to myself.
1: <laughs> that's always a plus when you enjoy listening to yourself yeah so that it makes always be the case (laughs) uh, that i i can i can imagine um but no so it's like not only are you choosing what type of music you're playing for the album but you're also choosing which gigs to go for which ones don't seem to fit your style if you um it sounds like in terms of scheduling maybe there's some flexibility um Depending on sort of how much is available to you at a given time, um, how many, how yeah. many gigs are even out there to audition for?
0: Schedules are always fun. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure, sure.
0: Right now, I basically have four different jobs and trying to balance them in a way with, that is fair for all of them is sometimes a challenge.
1: So you're saying that uh, having a streamlined, organized calendar is a must for any musician.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I mean, if, if anyone asks me what, like, the biggest challenge of being a musician is, I would probably say time management. Make sure you're ready for all of the things you're committing to. But I'm really, really bad at saying no. I always at least, you know, try try for things because usually I'm enjoying it, too.
1: Well, and I, and I get the impression, especially in freelance work, saying yes is a good thing like saying no too many times might close off some opportunities uh, in the
0: absolutely yeah you know sometimes you got to make people be like indebted to you
1: <laughs> well and also just to have them know that you are like a team player you're you're available when they need you so they'll think of you when they have something come up in the future
0: right plus you also have to be like you know you can't be late you have to be really consistent about things. And sometimes there is traffic, you know, and figuring out, can I make it from this gig to this next thing at this amount of time or, or what? And then also figuring out, am I losing money by doing this?
1: Yeah. Like, will it cover even just my gas and time for being there? Yeah. Okay. So. So if you, um, were to give one piece of advice to anyone who was considering following this career path what would it be
0: one piece of advice
1: or multiple you don't have to limit yourself to just one
0: so I'd say if, if you really are pursuing performance as a career of like make sure you really love it before you dive in and spend all the money to get a degree or something that you may not actually use. And then I'd also say like, be really open to doing a variety of different things and pursuing a variety of different things. Like if I didn't have my keyboard playing skills, I would probably have about half of the income I do now. And so You know, if you do have that interest in learning another instrument and, uh, or, or learning how to teach well, or you can have a lot of different hats as a musician or being involved in, in the arts and don't limit yourself to only playing horn.
1: So that, that sounds interesting because it's almost like you're saying, simultaneously, be really passionate about this single-minded pursuit and like be, you know, be sure that it's something that you are totally fine with taking over your life. And also at the same time, be like flexible enough to have other things that can fill in the gaps as
0: it were. Yeah, definitely.
1: Okay, sounds super easy, check.
0: (laughs) Um. (laughs) I mean, I've been lucky enough that I've been mostly employed doing something associated with music in my life. I've, I, I did spend a little bit of time working for the census and working at Walgreens, but all of my other jobs have, if not been playing music, it's been ushering or, or you know, working at a music store or something along those lines where it was somehow involved in the arts. And I think that has been more fulfilling for me even though I might not have actually made as much money out of it.
1: (laughs) So that being said, then if you weren't playing music, like if you, you know, could go back and start all over again, what do you think you would pursue as a career? Can you even imagine it? Like, is that something you've thought of?
0: I have definitely thought about, one of the reasons I'm still doing music now, like even after leaving the Air Force, is because I couldn't figure out what I'd rather do. Okay. To (laughs) be perfectly honest, I didn't really want to go back and get a completely new undergrad, um, but I probably would have pursued some sort of science degree. Um, My initial thought was like something in the biology realm of things I enjoyed. I enjoyed Mrs. Sapir's AP biology class. Oh, that I notorious
1: class. <laughs> oh, it was
0: so hard. <laughs> or, you know, I, I have a lot of other interests, but, um, you know, I love reading. I love history. I've, there's so many things I could be doing, but like it always comes back to music for me. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player because I know how to throw and catch.
1: enjoyed listening to this episode of My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder. The podcast theme music was composed by Anna Bradley, with sound editing assistance from Yulie Aerson. The podcast logo was designed by Ashley Burke, with help from model Ivy Bean. Thanks to our guests and to all our listeners for tuning in. If you have follow-up questions for a guest, send them in for a chance to be featured on an upcoming Audience Asks segment. My Dilettante Life is available wherever you get your podcasts, as well as directly at hannabinder.com slash my dilettante life. That's hanabinde rcom com slash my dash dilettante dash life. Tschüss!